0: Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed, by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. When I was uh, invited, Mark asked me if I would speak, and um, he asked if I would talk about revival. Um, So you probably just need to know a couple things about me as I start this talk, revivals kind of been um, a theme of my life. I pastored in New England, and the reality of the church situation in New England is during my lifetime it went from about fifty percent of the population attending church to about three percent of the population attending church. And I got to a place where I realized and, and unless God does a fresh move of his Holy Spirit. All of our smarts, all of our abilities, all of our efforts, all of our resources are not going to turn this thing around. We need God to do a fresh move of the Holy Spirit. When I was 24 years old, um, I was alone with God. I spent a day alone with God and I heard the Lord and he spoke to me and I heard him, not out loud, but just internally, but I knew it was him. And he just said to me, he said, "Um, I'm calling you to fight for revival. And I was 24. He said, you're going to plan a church, which I did in the Boston area later on. And then he said to me, you're also going to teach at seminary, which I've done for over 20 years. It just ended um, last week. And then he said, you're also going to write books and speak internationally. None of these things I ever sought out. They just kind of came my way. It was just God's plan. And then he said, everything you do, do for revival. And so this has been kind of my life theme, is fighting for renewal. And I've studied revival. Like, I've read every revival I can get my hands on in history. I've studied the revivals that have occurred in the Bible, like when God poured out His Spirit in the Bible or in church history, like the first and second great awakenings and so forth. And as I've read this stuff, you know, one of the things that I have wrestled with is, like, what's God's part in this? And what's our part? You know, one of the things I realize is this, I can't do God's job, right? So the only part I'm responsible for is my part. So the focus today, really, that I want to talk about it is our part, because I can't do God's part. There's, it, there is, and I want to say right up front, and I'm going to spend a lot of time with this, there is a mysterious sovereign element to revival that we can't control, okay? However, there are human components to it that we're very much responsible for. And that's the part I can be concerned about. What's my part to put myself in a position to receive the fullness of God? That is my part. And what I want to look at today is I want to look at an Old Testament story. It's funny because I didn't know that Mark was going to say to me, would you preach on revival? And probably a couple days before he asked me to do it, I was reading in the Old Testament the story of a king named Asa. And when I read this story, I actually listened to it on an audio Bible one day and I stopped after the three chapters of Asa because I could feel just the stirring of the Holy Spirit and I thought, I need to linger with this. And I lingered with it then with my paper Bible for three or four days and was just soaking in what I was learning and then Mark said, would you preach on revival? And I thought, I don't think that was a coincidence. So I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 14 through 16. You know, you can use an app and stuff, but we'll have it up on the board for you as well, parts of it, but you might want to follow along. Listen, um, I want to just set historical context, right? So when you study the Old Testament, one of the things you see is this pattern. It's a really sad pattern, but this is the pattern. The people of God are constantly rebelling against God. So what God is calling them to is to put God at the center of their lives. And what you see constantly is these people continually go to other deities. They continually run to sexual immorality. They continually push God to the edges of their life. And God sends them prophets and he sends them new leaders and he sends them people to call them back to God at the center of it all. And there's these moments in time where someone comes along in leadership and they sort of call the people back to God at the center, not at the edges. And this is one of those moments in history. There's a man that arises, his name is Asa, and we pick up the story at verse 2. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He removed the foreign altars and the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Assyria poles. These were all other worship practices that had become part of Israel's sad history. And there was all these foreign altars up, and even near the temple, and they're worshiping at these places. And Asa realizes, because his heart here is for the Lord, and he wants the Lord to be at the center, that these things need to go. And he starts tearing them down. And notice what he does next. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and to obey his laws and commandments. Listen, as I walk through the story, I just want to drop a couple of lessons that I observe in there. So here you go. You ready? Lesson number one about our part when it comes to preparing our hearts to receive renewal, the fullness of God, saturated lives with His presence. You ready? Number one, holiness matters to God. And that's our part. We've got to take holiness seriously. Listen, if you read the Pentateuch, right, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, there's a line that occurs in the book of Leviticus, which is one of the most boring, difficult books to read in the Old Testament. But when you read the book of Leviticus, there's the line, and this is the line, you ready? Be holy, God speaking, be holy for I am holy. That's kind of the theme of the whole book. Be holy because I am holy. You know what God's really saying? He's saying, I want you to represent me well to everybody you interact with. And if you're going to represent me well, you have to be holy because that's who I am. I am holy. And so this is what you see Asa doing. He is trying to move the people of God to a new level of holiness. You see what happens when God gets pushed to the periphery, to the edges of our life, holiness is lost. We start to do things according to what we feel is right. And there's other things that start to become at the center of our lives. The Bible calls those things idols. And that's what was going on. So he starts removing idols He calls the people to seek the Lord, and he calls the people to obey God. Listen, I don't want to be too hard on the Israelites, because if I'm honest, this is part of my own journey. I have discovered that there are days where I push God to the edges of my life. I went to church my whole life, right, man? My, My parents took me to church from the time I was three or four years old. I don't ever remember not going to church. But I have to tell you, the first 19 years of my life, Jesus was at the edge Now, I want you to understand, when I'm 16 years old, I started reading the Bible. Actually, I started reading even earlier, so there was some spiritual desire there. By the time I'd been 19, I'd read the Bible through cover to cover four times. I don't know how many 19-year-old kids do that, so there was desire. But even though I'd been reading the Bible, even though I'd been going to church, God was at the edge of my life. It wasn't at the center. When I made decisions, it wasn't based on, what does God want? It wasn't based on my central love for Jesus. It was based on what I wanted. And if I was really honest, I was kind of the center of my life, and then God was over here on the edge. I went to church. One of the reasons I went to church, because I was dating a girl at church. Church wasn't that interesting, but she was. And so, you know, I was dating her for a while, and she broke up with me. And when she broke up with me, I was really heartbroken, it was the first time I felt this kind of heartbreak feeling. And, you know, I cried out to God and my heart ache. And when I cried out to God in the midst of this heartache, I heard the Lord speak to me. It was the first time I ever heard God's voice. And again, I didn't hear it audibly. It was inside, but I knew it was God. And this is what I sensed the Lord saying to me. That's the same way. I said to him, Lord, I said, you know, I gave this girl my heart and look what happened. And I heard the Lord and he said, that's the same way you've treated me your whole life which I thought was a little rude of an introduction. You know what I mean, Andy? But I have to tell you, I saw this picture, and here was the picture. Jesus was standing at the center, and he was calling me with love and affection and tenderness to put him at the center of my life. And I'd been pushing him over to the edge. And I'd been living life for me, and that day I was so struck, with the loss of pushing Jesus to the edge of my life that I surrendered. I just said to the Lord, from now on, you lead. I will follow anywhere you lead me. That day radically changed my life. That day, Jesus became the center of my life. I have to say, ever since, I've never wandered very far from Jesus being at the center. And unfortunately... Just like the Israelites, there's times where he's back to the edges, and I have to renew my heart with Jesus at the center. But holiness has become a big deal in my life since then, and so I appreciate Ace's push for this. It's been part of my own journey. This is my first lesson. Listen, when I am walking in step with the Spirit, Paul says, when I'm walking in holiness, I feel the nearness of God. When Jesus is at the center, I feel his nearness, but when I push him to the edge, I feel distant. Now, I want you to know that this is a really common thing that happens. Sometimes when we put God at the center and we make those decisions that we're really going to follow him with our whole heart, we're challenged in life. Difficulties arise. Crises come our way. And that's exactly what happens to Asa in the very next scene. Pick up the story, First Chronicles chapter 14, verse 9, and a Cushite army arises against Asa. Here he is putting God right at the very center of the community of believers, and then there's resistance. The army, by the way, is about three times the size of his army, and he's terrified. Asa the king is scared. And here's what happens. Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, There is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord, our God, for we rely on you. And in your name, we've come against this vast army. Let me just pause and make a parenthetical statement. Lots of people's faith is more religious than actual Actual, authentic faith relies on the Lord and not on all this other stuff. Please hear me. When you're relying on other stuff, Jesus isn't really at the center. He's at the edge. But this guy has really put Jesus at the center, God at the center of his life. And when crisis comes, he turns to the Lord, and he is relying on God alone to deliver him from the crisis. It's a beautiful story which really leads me to my second lesson, okay? Here's what I've discovered about renewal in Scripture and in history and in my own life. When we seek to put God at the center of our life and we really seek to follow Him, we often go through times of crises, difficulties, hardship, and testing. It's kind of normative. But here's what I want you to catch that's so important, okay? These tests are critically important because they help us to purify our hearts and our motives. They actually test our sincerity. Is Jesus our first love? Is Jesus really at the center? Or are we really following Jesus as long as he brings us comfort? Is it Jesus we really want? And that's what happens to Asa. You know, He goes through this test. And in the end, the test turns out to be a really positive thing for Asa. He relies on the Lord. He presses in even further, and good results happen. I've experienced this too, just like Asa. I mean, this is part of my own story. You know, at one point, I told you I felt really called to revival, and at one point in my journey, I felt like God was calling me to turn up the heat in the battle for revival. I could see this continual slide that I talked about in church attendance and Christian morality in New England, and so I decided, you know, I really need to go after this, and I I was sitting with the Lord. I started praying and fasting a lot more, really seeking God away in retreat space, monastery space, just alone with God, and one day I'm alone with the Lord, and I hear the Lord, and this is what he said to me. He said, preach revival until it comes, and I'm like, all right, that sounds good, and so I start preaching revival. Now, in my naivete, I thought the people of God would like that, Turns out they didn't like that. I'm preaching on revival and I started getting creamed. I mean, I had somebody develop an imaginary Facebook page against me, friended everybody in the church, wrote against me every day. Of course, I couldn't resolve it or solve it or confront it because the person wasn't using their real name. I had radio shows done against me in the Boston, in the city of Boston, six radio shows just dedicated to attacking me. I didn't even know the guy that was doing them. I had, you know, blogs done against me. I literally had a blog started against me. I had public, you know, stuff going on like this. One day, I'm in a local grocery store. I told the story at the Soul Care Conference. I'm in a local grocery store. I hear two people talking against me, and I'm literally standing right next to them. They don't know who I am, but they're talking against me because my name's been dragged through the mud, and I'm telling you, when you go through a season of crisis and testing, it's not uncommon that you doubt what you're doing. And I'm sitting there trying to really pursue God with all my heart and put him at the center. And I'm starting to go, am I doing the right thing? Did I really hear you tell me to preach revival till it comes? Is this really what you called me to? Because this doesn't feel like it's going the way it should. And so, you know, one day I'll go to the monastery and I'm alone with the Lord. And I said to him, this kind of question, am I doing the right thing, Lord? You know, I'm just trying to do what you told me to do. I'm preaching revival. I'm getting killed here. I, I, I'm not actually whining about it. I just don't get it. Why? And I heard the Lord, and this is what he said to me. I'm answering your prayer. To which I said, Lord, I don't know what I've been praying, but if you tell me, I promise I'll stop. He said, you're praying for revival. But you have to have the character and intimacy necessary to sustain that kind of, of the presence of Christ upon your life. And you can't have that without testing. Testing is critical to presence bearing. And I laid on the monastery floor and I said, then go ahead, Lord. Answer my prayer no matter what it takes. Seven years I was under attack. I'll tell you, I was afflicted with doubt throughout the attack. I mean, it didn't go away once I had that conversation with God. I can remember almost every day, but definitely every week, I would sit before the Lord and say, am I doing the right thing? I'm just trying to do what you told me to do. Am I doing the right thing? Am I really doing the right thing? And you know what God kept saying to me? One phrase over and over every day for years. Here was the phrase, put your hand to the plow and do not look back. Put your hand to the plow and do not look back. Put your hand to the plow. And do not look back. I hear this every day. I go, God, am I doing the right thing? Put your hand to the plow and do not look back. Next day, God, I'm really getting killed. Am I doing the right thing? Put your hand to the plow. And do not look back. Listen, this has gone on for six straight months. One day, I'm teaching in a church service, my service. I was pastoring at the time. I'm teaching in the church. A woman is visiting. She comes up to me after the service, and she said to me, Pastor, she said, I know you don't know me, but she said, while you were up there preaching today, I had a vision of you. I said, oh, yeah, please share. She goes, you were standing in in a farm field behind a hand plow. You were plowing the field by hand. The field was full of roots and rocks and thorns and thistles, and you were pushing against all of the resistance, and you were tired and weary and worn out, but you would not quit. Put your hand to the plow and do not look back. Every day, I'm telling you, man, I am beset with affliction. And I'm crying out to the Lord, am I doing the right thing? Even after that, am I doing the right thing? You know, put your hand to the plow. Do not look back. A year later, I'm doing a soul care conference at my church. A Canadian pastor came to the conference. He comes up to me at a break. He said to me, pastor, he said, I know you don't know me, but while you were up there speaking, I had a vision of you. He said, you were standing in an old field behind a hand plow. (laughs) The field was full of rocks and roots and thorns and thistles. You were sweaty and grimy and weary and worn out, but you would not quit. And then he burst into tears and said, and the Lord is so pleased with you. Put your hand to the plow. One of the lessons that I've discovered in my life about renewal, and Asa had to discover as well, and that is when crisis come, you need to persevere. You can't quit. The good news is, you know, the Lord brings the victory for Asa. And then after the victory, there's a prophetic word. There's a man named Azariah. He comes to Asa and he says, listen to me, Asa. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And Asa, man, he doubles down. He's like, oh, then we are going all in for this reform. In verse 8 of chapter 15, it says, Then when Asa heard these words in the prophecy of Azariah, son of Obed the prophet, he took courage He removed the detestable idols From the whole land of Judah, not just a little, now he's going all in. And from Benjamin and from the towns he had captured from the hills of Ephraim, which used to be Israel, now other part of Judah. And he repaired the altar of the Lord. Listen, God had gotten so off to the edges of Israel's life that the altar was no longer. They got all these idols all over the land, all of these little places of worship all over the land that are up and running, but the altar of God at the temple is not running. And he repairs it back to the center. And in verse 12 of chapter 15, they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, with all their heart and soul. No longer at the edge, right at the center. All in. And they took an oath to the Lord with loud acclamation. They sought the Lord eagerly, and he was found by them. And that leads me to my third lesson, and that is this, you know, the Lord is with us when we are with Him, and if we seek Him with all our heart, He will be found by us. There is a persistent pursuit of His presence that is necessary for revival. There's this passionate desire to know Him and be with Him. This is part of revival. If we're going to walk in His fullness, we're going to have to walk in step with the Spirit. Yeah, take holiness seriously. We're going to have to persevere through those seasons of testing, but we're also going to have to persist in pursuit of his presence. This is super important. Listen, you know, when I think about this, you know, the question that I always ask myself, and I I think it's the most important question to ask anybody, anytime, anywhere in human history, and that is simply this Is Jesus the first love of your life? Is Jesus your first love and primary obsession listen if i read my bible correctly jesus says the most important thing in all the world is to love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind with all your strength this is the most important thing so therefore the most important question is simply this look at your life and ask yourself this most important eternal question is jesus your first love and primary obsession I got to tell you, that the answer to that question is not always yes for me, and there's times where I need to once again get off the edges of the wilderness and bring God right back to the center of it all. Is Jesus your first love? You know, when we went through COVID, one of the things that I discovered in COVID is, man, we were obsessed about all kinds of stuff, at least in the U.S. I don't know about Australia, but we were obsessed about masks and no masks, vaccines and no vaccines, politically right, politically left. We were obsessed about all kinds of stuff. But you know what most of our obsession was about was ourselves, especially about our rights. Listen, I'm just going to tell you flat out. I travel the world. I've been on every continent on the planet except Antarctica, and that's because I hate cold weather, which is why I come to Melbourne. (laughs) And what I can tell you as I travel the world is the single greatest problem in the church today worldwide is we're making it too much about us and not enough about Jesus. Too much about our needs, our wants, our desires, our feelings, our emotions, our resources, our ideas, our opinions. No offense, but no one really cares about your opinion. The real issue of eternity is Jesus, your first love and primary obsession. Can I tell you, one day you're gonna breathe your last, you're gonna wake up in the arms of Jesus, at least I hope that you do. And when you do, the one question that will be central to human history is this one question, is Jesus your first love and primary obsession? No one who lives life with that at the center is ever going to live eternity with a single regret. I want to live my life today with Jesus at the primary space. I want him to be my first love, my hottest pursuit, my main obsession. And this is just something we're going to have to do from time to time is renew that passion that we have for Jesus. So I ask you the question, and I encourage you to humbly answer the question before the Lord, honestly. For 35 years, Asa reigns as the king of Israel, king of Judah, with God's favor just raining down upon him. It's awesome, if only the story ended there. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, another enemy attacks Asa. And this time, he does not turn to the Lord. One of the things that success does for us sometimes is it actually makes us proud and more self-reliant and more resistant. And when that happens, God gets pushed more to the edges. And Rather than relying on the Lord, he actually turns to another nation. This one is Aram. And the victory does come, incidentally, when he returns to this other nation, but the victory comes... At what cost? Second Chronicles, chapter 16, verse 7 says, At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped your hand. This is one of his enemies that he turns to in a time of a second enemy coming against him. Then the Lord reminds him that previously, this isn't the way he operated. Previously, when he was in need of help, he relied on the Lord and trusted God, and God delivered, but this time he goes the wrong direction. And then in verse 9... He says, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. You have done a foolish thing, and from now on you will be at war. And sadly, you know, God actually is bringing, in this case, discipline to Asa. Please hear me. Biblically speaking, the purpose of discipline is not punitive. It's restorative. God's goal in discipline, God's goal sometimes with the hardships that come into our lives, is that we would, they would be corrective, that we would stop pushing him to the edge and put him right at the center. And that's his goal. But Asa, sadly, refuses to repent. He refuses to humble himself. He refuses the correction from the Lord. Sometimes when God brings correction, he brings it through the word. You know, you're reading your Bible and all of a sudden something strikes you and you read it and it's like... <gasps> i better make a course correction. Sometimes it happens through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You know, you're sitting with the Lord or even driving your car one day, and all of a sudden there's a conviction of the Holy Spirit that something isn't right. You're not having God at the center, and he's trying to bring course correction. Sometimes it comes through another person. a Word they speak, an act they have against us. i got to tell you, sometimes the people that bring correction are not good people. They're our enemies. And they're not kind. But the problem is what they're actually telling us is true, and we need to humbly receive it. And that's the case here. He has an enemy, and he doesn't listen. And then he has a prophet, and he doesn't listen. And then, sadly, verse 10, it gets worse. He says, Asa was angry with the seer because of this prophetic word to correction. And he was so enraged that he put the prophet in prison. This is a guy that's centered on God for 35 years. And at the same time, Asa brutally oppressed some of the people. The pride, the success has gone to his head. And he's become an oppressor. Then, you know, God sends him an illness in his feet, which again is just... Discipline that's to, supposed to lead him to correction, to put God at the center again, to get him to repent, but he still refuses to repent, refuses to seek the Lord, only relies on physicians, and his last five years of his life are ending in pain, warfare, and without the favor of God. Gosh, I wish this stuff wasn't in the Bible. Can, can I just close by saying the main idea, the big idea, the whole point of the passage is the essential nature of humility. Humility is the singular human characteristic necessary to welcome the presence of God. God opposes the proud, he gives grace favor, abundance to the humble. The one thing God longs for most is humility in my heart and yours. Humility is the central character trait necessary for revival. This is the big thing. God is irresistibly attracted to contrite people, but the proud walk alone. When I started reading revivals, I mentioned to you earlier, you know, I studied the history of Revival. And um, I studied it because I wanted to see what God was doing. Again, what's our part? What's God's part? Like I said at the beginning, you know, and so as I started studying the history of Revival, one of the books that I read, which was a really interesting read, was called God's Giants. That was the name of the book. It's actually four volumes. I read all four volumes. But essentially, this author, what he does is he looks at the history of revival by studying the biographies of the key human players in the revivals, okay? So he's just looking, talking about the story of a revival, then looking at the human that was the key instrument in this great move of God. And I read literally hundreds of stories of renewals and the key human figure, one after another after another. And, and you know what I noticed the pattern of the book? of them did not finish well, just like Asa. 80% of these guys in human history allowed the success to go to their head and their heart hardened. They became proud. And at the end, they ended up in dark places like sexual immorality, oppression like Asa, where they were just like power-hungry, abusive people with power. All this kind of really dark stuff. Some of them were financially manipulative and corrupt and all this. And when I read these stories, it did something in me. I laid out before the Lord and I said to the Lord, I have got to make sure that I I keep you at the center and I keep my heart soft before you. I started reading a book a number of years ago to help me. It's a book called Let Go. It was written by a 17th century monk, 1600s. The author's name is Francois Fenelon. The book Let Go um, should have really been retitled Just Shut Up and Die. It would have been a much better (laughs) title. As far as I can tell, no one in the history of the church has ever understood death to self, humility, surrender, death to self, like Francois Fenelon. No one's ever understood how death to self leads to the abundant life. I mean, this is what Jesus said, you have to die to live, pick up your cross daily. When you die, that's when you experience the abundant presence of Christ overflowing in your life. But when you make it about you, you lose that. God gets to the edges and you lose the abundance. And so I have read that book over 50 times. Is the only book besides the Bible that I've read that much. You want to know why? Because I feel the pull of self to center and God to the edge. Every day of my life, I feel it. So I read that book every year, two or three times a year. And I keep bowing my stiff neck and dying before the King of Kings. When I take my last breath, I want Jesus to be at the center I want Jesus to be my first love and my primary obsession. Now, I don't want to find myself in the center of it all. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we humans have a near limitless capacity to make life too much about us. It's phenomenal, really. And I know it's true of me. It was true of Asa. I read God's giants. It was true of them. It's true of all of us. It's part of being human. Some of us in this moment, Lord, if we're really honest, we've been making life way too much about us these days. It's been too much about us and our relationships with our family and our marriages or and our singleness and in our parenting, our, in our wishes and desires, too much about what we want, what we need, what we feel, just too much about us and not enough about you. And if renewal is going to happen, yeah, yeah, there's a mysterious sovereign part to this whole thing, but there's a real human part to this whole thing. We've got to care for the condition of our hearts. We've got to humble ourselves before the Lord Most High. So, today, if we're in one of those places where we need a little sustained humility, I pray we'd do the right thing and humble ourselves before you, Lord. I'm just going to give you a minute to talk to Jesus, and I will tell you when we're done, there will be people up front if you want prayer for anything. Sometimes humility means you go and Humble yourself and ask for help and prayer and confession as part of humility. And there's going to be a prayer team up here, but just take a moment alone with God, and then I'll pray with you, and the worship team will close. Jesus, you said anyone who wants to save their life in this world will lose it. But whoever is willing to lose their life for you will find it. May we know the abundant life of Christ through death to self. May we embrace humility in Jesus' name.